HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. I'm not really going to have to do much today because your name, Rawia, actually means storyteller. Am I correct? Correct. (laughs) We have the lovely ladies of Tannerine Restaurant here in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and the release of quite possibly one of the most exciting books of the year thus far. Wow. Olives, Lemons, and Zatar. At least for me, I am a longtime customer. Yes, uh, I remember when you had, what was it, like 10 tables in that little kitchen. storefront. Yeah. Deli, and, deli display case. And we did a piece in Edible Brooklyn, and I got to spend the day doing the back of the house. A couple days. I kept on returning, even though I didn't have to. Yes. <laughs> and the charm, one. The food, two. And... Then the family, because once you set foot in Tannerine and eat your food, it feels like you're part of your family. Thank you. That's very nice to hear. A lot of different people say that, actually. They feel like they're welcomed into their mother's kitchen, and I always tell them it's my mother's <laughs> kitchen. But, <laughs> but it, it truly is. It, it, it's so warm and inviting every time you come in. And the book itself, too, as far as stories and as far as recipes, have that same you know, sensibility to it. But I kind of want to start from the beginning because, you know, we, we jokingly say you, you've come from Nazareth to New York, and obviously there's a lot of years and a lot of journey in between, but you what know, part strange. of Nazareth is, is brought with you? How, how does that show itself? You know, it's strange that you're saying that because, in fact, that was my first choice for a name for the book. We were going to call it From Nazareth to New York. Because it was a long journey. Uh, what part of Nazareth? 
It's all of Nazareth. It's really the culture, the cooking, the family life, uh, friends. It's the whole thing. Um, it's beautiful. It was fantastic. And I just wanted to keep it alive. So I can say the whole thing came with me. What's left from it? All of it. And I added to it. Because Absolutely. you cannot lose that. Once you have that, you keep it. It's all about family, love, friendship. I think when you cook with uh, emotions, when you cook with... Um, um, I, I, it's passion. You keep it that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it shows. And coming to the dining room, you know, at Tannerine, you sit down, you get your menu. But the most um, striking thing, I think, is seeing the two of you buzz around that floor. You know, check on your customers, interact with everybody. And, you know, was family life growing up where there are a lot of siblings? I know, Rawia, you had multiple siblings. Right. Two brothers and two sisters. We're five altogether. Yeah. And was there always family around? Always family around. My mother comes from a village my father comes from another village and they lived in Nazareth so we always had visitors sleeping over they called it Hotel Bishara <laughs> in fact and always always people sleeping over we wake up there is somebody sleeping in the house and my mom had to cook always for an army she always had to cook for 10 people and up so, so that's something that also came from Nazareth to New York because my brother and I grew up that way in Brooklyn as well. Yeah. We always had house guests, always people coming through from overseas and mom would cook and entertain for everybody. So it's a, it's sort of an extension from the house to the restaurant. Yeah. And people always said to her in the beginning, you know, how are you going to, you know, you cook in, on short court, but how are you going to cook in a commercial place? And she made it work. You know, she was able to translate the recipes so that the style of cooking anyway, the home style cooking is conducive to family, which is why I think that the same style of cooking that we do at Tannerine also makes our patrons feel like they're eating with the family. I also feel like there's a situation where you can't cook for one. When you cook, you cook a plenty. <laughs> no, who yeah. wants to cook for one? <laughs> You're right. I cannot. Even if I try, it comes for more yeah. than, than one. Um, you see, um, I think that the whole uh, operation of just being in the kitchen and cooking with others is fantastic it brings people together somehow it's much different when you are at home it's not like you're out you're at home you want to feel you are at home so you if your husband and your kids are around and you're having a drink and you're cooking and you're listening to music or it's fantastic it gives an atmosphere uh, of comfort it makes you want to stay home and this is one of the reasons for my book, in fact, um, this this idea of just being together, not just knowing how to mix a salad or its togetherness, it it helps make the food more delicious. Do you remember, respectively, the first times you both cooked with your mothers? Go on, Jimena. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I just always remember being hanging around. You know, people always seem to congregate in the kitchen when they're at home, and that was something that we always did as well. We had one chair in the kitchen next to a window that we all used to fight over. So, I mean, I don't remember cooking a particular dish, but I always remember asking questions about what she was doing next. There was always something happening. So, you know, I I, I learned uh, how to cook and about ingredients and putting things together from my mom at a pretty young age. As did my brother. We were we were always around in the kitchen when she was cooking. Um, with me, I remember things besides cooking. Um, you see, in my time, which is long time ago, we used to pickle everything. We used to make jams. We used to make everything uh, as uh, a reserve for the winter, from the summer. So it, there were seasons for that. Like if we go uh, to my father's village, Tarshiha, in the summer, what we do is it's time uh, for cultivating many of the um, grains, grains and, and greens, uh, summer vegetables and fruits, like we dry okra, um, we do the, um, the wheat, we dry it, we boil it, we prepare it for cracked wheat to make burgol of it. We do sun-dried tomatoes, we do tomato paste, we do all these kind of jams. Like the month of August, it's so beautiful in the village. You do all these things and then you go back to Nazareth loaded with all this food and all these bags of stuff that's going to stay with you for like four or five months to come. Because everything is eaten there in season. It's not like these days you can find tomato in the middle of the winter. No. There was no tomato in the middle of the winter. You have to have preserved tomato already in your pantry or something like this to, to deal with. The same stories with lentils, with fava bean, with beets, with mostly everything. We had a way of preserving or drying or keeping everything for the next season. The same story goes on in the winter when the winter uh, season comes up. So, you know, with, with the oranges and the citrus and all that. So it's... Something really fantastic. There was food, things, you know, operations going on in the house all the time. Making cheese, making uh, yogurt spread. We always had something to do. So we both remember the process yeah. pretty much. <laughs> See, I didn't have to say much during that because, <laughs> you know, these memories and it's, it's transportive. You know, I feel like even though have, having never been to, you know, northern Israel, I mm -hmm. feel like I'm there. But how did you take, you know, the olive groves? And bring that to Brooklyn because Bay Ridge is, even though in Bensonhurst you can walk around and see it, you know, a fig tree here and there, Bay Ridge is not really, you know, the, the same sense, the same, you know, uh, pastures, the same architecture as Nazareth. He's talking to you. You're the one that's from <laughs> Nazareth. You know, um, we did not bring it here. What happened is we had to find something here that can be. Um, uh, similar or can put us in the same atmosphere like I found green olives and three brothers a guy that sells vegetable in Brooklyn three I bought three guys I bought boxes of it and I pickled so many of it everybody was surprised that I am doing olives from green I'm not buying pickled olives already I found the small Arabic cucumber you know, now you find many stuff that we were not able to find if we went looking for it 
30 years ago or for you know I came yeah, to bear it's, it's an adaptation I mean you mentioned exactly. olive o- olive trees and I think olive oil in particular and olives and the tree and you know you can see if people don't know part of our logo when you go to Tannerine the tree in the middle is an olive tree it's very representative to us of our culture so you know I think you find ways to adapt when you're in a place that's very different or very far from home as my mom was at the time, you find a way to make it work and you try to sort of bring those ingredients and bring the style of cooking and bring the traditions and apply it to, to Brooklyn. And now, you know, I think we've become um, an institution in our neighborhood and, you know, we love it there. So we're really grateful for that. Um, and it just, it works. You see, the nice thing about all of this is living in New York, that I came to New York not to uh, a city in the Midwest or a place like this. New York is fantastic with uh, ethnic groups and ethnicities and restaurant. Restaurant business is incredible in New York. I tried all this type of things that I never had in my life. Um, Starts from, let's say, Japanese, Chinese, Italian, um, all this type of food. And that teaches you quite a lot. And it makes, if these people are able to bring their kitchen into New York, I'm supposed to be able to bring my kitchen into New York. If they're able to cook, I'm supposed to be able to cook. So I started looking for stuff. And that's how you get encouraged that the other is fantastic. It's beautiful. It tastes good. Then people are going to love my food. Our food is not about hummus and baba ghanoush and tabbouleh the way people think it is our food has such it has such a rich kitchen so healthy so fantastic and it's so similar to everybody that's from the mediterranean we are very similar to the greek food to the italian food to spanish food we cook with the same ingredients the only difference is the spices and the herbs. So you adapt to that and you find the right spice. You you find the right herb. It's not a problem. Well, I mean, if you look at something as simple as meze, you know, the, the, the kind of appetizer. We dish. called it a mood. Yeah. In fact, in the book. And and there's tapas in right. Spanish cuisine. Exactly. And, you know, there's antipasto in Italian cuisine. Exactly. So, Dim sum from China. Absolutely. And it yeah. is such a melting pot. But exactly. then again, trying to find certain things in New York were hard. And I remember when I first met you, it is. there was a special packet of sumac. There were certain things that you still had <laughs> I to. I still have problems oh, yeah. with sumac, by the way. <laughs> but, I mean, you, you couldn't lose some of these flavors. And would you eliminate those dishes if you didn't no. have those ingredients? No. I want, and you know what I did? I started getting those ingredients from overseas. There is always a way. You know, when, when you want to do something, when there is a well, when you want something to work out, you make it work out. Summa is one of the most important um, ingredients in many of my dishes, like msakhan, which is the pizza. They call it the chicken pizza. It cannot be done without summa. Zatar, it's, you know, all these is even in the name of the book. You cannot do without za'atar. Now I find green za'atar in New York, believe it or not, but I still bring my dry za'atar from overseas because they dry it for me. I know I trust the people that do it, and it's pure, and I know it's organic. When something is very important, it has to be the best. So I still do that. We started by bringing our spices from overseas. Now I found a company that can mix our spices. We gave them, 
you know, the ingredients. We gave them the measurements, and they're doing it for me here. So tannurine spices is being done here in the States, and I'm selling it even at tannurine. At the beginning, it was very hard. I tried to imitate my mother's mix of spices. That's how tannurine spices came along. So it's not easy, but it's doable. Yeah, we, we um, have packaged our specialty blend of spices right now that are for sale at Tenerine. We're going to figure out a way to be shipping them soon, but um, it's a really great accompaniment to the book right yeah. now. So. And you can go right down to Bay Ridge and pick those up mm-hmm. now, yeah. as well as the book, which has been hard to find. I mean, the success of you know Olives, Lemons, and Zatar, uh, I, for one, have, have been so excited for this to come out. And you know, I, I instantly was going to get it, but the response has been overwhelmingly and, and positive. Yeah. Just it's been spectacular, more than we could have hoped for. Did you expect this? What are you doing as far as a business or as far as you know a, a, a people to respond to that? See, um, the book, in fact, um, is coming out for people like you. When I found out that you're the one who's going to be interviewing us, I was very excited <laughs> about it because I wanted somebody that understood where we come from. The food. You've been coming to Tenorine for a while and eating the food there. So you know what the food is like. And you know how much I put into my cooking. And it's exactly the way you described it. And to me, this is something extremely important. The book was written for people like you. So you can do a fetouche if you want to do a fetouche. I even tried to find ways that the response on the book is incredible. Because people are finding... Such sophisticated food, old-fashioned, so easy to do. And they're finding that very strange. One woman told me, I can't believe that msakhan I ate at your place is only four ingredients. I said, yeah. When, when you tell people that, they don't believe you. But when they make it themselves, they're going to see that this is what it is. Yeah, I mean, the complexity, and you were joking, saying that you don't have hummus, don't have baba ganoush. You do at the restaurant. Of course we do. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> and it's spectacular, but... Again, something as simple as Mahamara. How many ingredients does that have? And it, it's, you know, it's mind blowing the first time you taste it. Yeah, you see, I agree. That's one of my favorite yeah. dishes, and it's very simple to make. It's four or five ingredients. That's all it takes. It's not just about the ingredients; it's about just making it too, because there is no cooking involved. It's like a kind of a spread that's made out of all fresh stuff, and that even makes it healthier and better. It's nice when people know what's involved in the dish they're loving or they're in love with because that makes it even better. It's always nice. Food is not a mystery, really. Food is how you look at it. Food is passion. It's taste. It's, you know... Comfort. We, it's exactly. You know, we, we always underestimate people and their taste. People have very sophisticated taste with food if you give them the right stuff they really understand it and love it everybody thought that if you if i bring all this up to the avenue from my kitchen home cooking are you kidding you're gonna cook okra and rice for people you're gonna cook maftool for people yes i cooked okra and rice and maftool and people loved it you know if you cook it the right way and again i always sign my book cook with love if you cook it understanding what you are doing, if, let's say, the people you are cooking for don't like, uh, let's say, za'atar, they like basil, and you substitute one herb with the other, and I tell people that, um, if they don't like too much lemon, they like less lemon, 
And I tell people that. The salt, the same story. Then you're giving people a choice how to do things. It's about passion. It's, you know, how you do that. How you do it? It's not just about ingredients. Michael, you uh, you asked about the book also. It's I need to plug this here now. Do it, yeah. Yeah, we have a, a bunch of stock at Tenerine. So if you're local or if you're in for dinner, you can pick one up there. It's available on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. It's at you know independent local bookstores. So it's it, it's out there. And if it's not and it's out of stock, it's being replenished. Yeah. So. And I just want to reinforce: if you go to Tenerine to pick up a book. Stay for dinner. Don't be silly. That's ridiculous. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about what is Middle Eastern cuisine and then what is Rawia's Middle Eastern cuisine. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will too, and I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Here again with Rawia and Jumana Bashara of Tannerine, their lovely book, Olives, Lemons, and Zatar. So Middle Eastern cuisine, the Middle East is a very large region. Correct. Many countries. And when you say Middle East, you kind of get clumped into this idea of what it is. Mm -hmm. But what makes, well, what is Middle Eastern cuisine in, in your eyes? I think that we probably are more, um, we're in the group that's the Levantine sort of cuisine. So us as Palestinians, our food is very similar to Lebanese. And I think that most people know it as Lebanese cuisine or they, you know, um, familiarize themselves with it in that way. Um, so Palestine, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, those are sort of the, the closest to each other in terms of um of, of cooking style, correct me if I'm wrong, Mom. The Gulf and region is, is separate, too. Egypt is a little similar as well. North African is different. They use a lot more sweet ingredients, sweet spices. Um, but I would say that the Levantine region is most characteristic of the Middle Eastern cooking that we do. And there are certain dishes that are just across the board. I mean, everybody knows hummus. Everybody knows tabbouleh, kefta, um, very heavy on lamb, olive oil, fresh vegetables. And then there's sort of variations of one dish in a different country that uses an extra spice or something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, talk about variations. I was reading through the kibbeh recipe, Mm -hmm. and supposedly everyone has their own kibbeh, both raw and cooked, and it's very distinct of a village, a town, a region. What makes your kibbeh different or distinct? Well, um... 
We do the classic for sure, the classic lamb kibbe. We actually brought you today fish kibbe, which is really fantastic. Yeah, do tell. You so said this is a very special kibbe. You substitute basically the meat for fish. So it's, you know, the bulgur uh, wheat and uh, fish make the shell. And then you have onions and toasted almonds and pine nuts and spices. Um, and it's a vegetarian version of the real deal. And we make something which I love. My favorite one is pumpkin which is oh, the real wow. vegetarian vegan kibbe. Yeah. So it's a pumpkin and wheat shell and stuffed inside with spinach and walnuts and chickpeas. Um, absolutely delicious. Okay. You see, with me, uh, kibbe is not just um, a dish um, because kibbe is just really cracked wheat, meat, and spices. But kibbe is a mood. Kibbe, the way it used to be, in the old days, is you do it only when there is fresh slaughtering in the village and you can buy the meat, which is one day a week, Saturday most of the time, which is a day off for everybody. So kibbe is celebration. Everybody that can afford buying the meat, because it's usually big families, what they will do is you will go into, let's say, Rami or Tarshiha or even Nazareth, and you hear the pounds, I wasn't kidding when I spoke about that in the book. You hear the pounds of every mortar and pestle, mortar yeah. and pestle in, the, in the village. You hear it like in more than 10 homes at a certain time in the afternoon. Everybody's coming back of the be- from the beach or there is a wedding going on. All the meat is diced like that. Imagine nobody ever really waits to sit down at the table either. Exactly. If, yeah. if you, if you, like, I have memories of my aunt, my dad's sister in the kitchen, in Tarshiha, where she's got this big basin in front of her and she's kneading the the kibbe dough in her hands. And you basically come up and stand next to her, and she makes a little ball in her hand. She takes some of the stuffing, puts it in, and hands it to you, and that's how you eat it. They call it the bird. In fact, that little piece that's stuffed with something called hausi which we're going to start doing at Tanurian, which accompanies the kibbe. See, like you said, what makes my kibbe different? My mom always had hosi next to the raw kibbe. You don't eat raw kibbe alone. Next to it, raw kibbe is supposed to be very, very cold. You will have a satay of onion and lamb and nuts in olive oil and a lot of nice spices. And you stuff that little piece of raw kibbe with this hosi and you put it in your mouth and you have... A sip of Arak with it. That's pretty much is, a Palestinian thing, I think, it's right? It's very much a Palestinian thing, and I heard that they do it in Syria and they do it in Lebanon too, but not everybody. Yeah, so we're but saying the variation. Done. Lebanese mostly eat that's why I mentioned with, it. Exactly. You know, fresh onions and mint and olive oil on top, sometimes mostly without the the hosi. So, adding one element to a dish will take you from one country to another, yeah, pretty right. much. And that same dish. You will take the kibbe and you stuff it with the hosi and you bake it and it becomes baked kibbe. So it's supposed to be together, yeah. the hosi and the kibbe. See, we talk about, you know, substitutions, um, yeah. adaptations. Exactly. And, you know, the, the amazing thing is that you weren't only focusing on the Middle East. When you first came to New York, you had never had salmon outside of it being smoked. True. And, you know, opening up tannerine there weren't many people that understood your cuisine. And to, to, to make them comfortable, you made salmon and pesto. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you introduced basil in the dishes that never had basil. But this is something True. that your mother actually did, too. My mother did, too. And we had basil everywhere around the house in our garden. All different kind of basil, not just one kind of basil. And we call it haba. It smells beautiful. And we had it in our windowsills. 
we had um, all these different variations of basil, and she started using it in pasta. Like people ask me, your mom cooked pasta? I have a recipe for baked macaroni in my... Yeah, my mom cooked pasta 50 years ago. Baked macaroni was one of my favorite dishes with Arabic cheese grated on top. We had... My mom was very courageous with these things. She had... um, the courage to change things around a little bit. Like she would use cilantro. Not many people used cilantro in those days. My mom is very courageous too, yeah. actually. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, uh, for example, a very traditional dish in Middle Eastern cuisine is mahshi, right? So you take a baby zucchini or an eggplant and you hollow it out of the pulp and you stuff it with rice and lamb and cook it in tomato sauce. Last week she, she hollowed it out, but instead of rice and lamb, she made a vegetarian version where you stuff it with smoked wheat berries instead, change the tomato sauce to pomegranate molasses and tamarind and spices and fresh herbs, and she basically ch- transformed the dish from what was the traditional way of serving it to something really delicious. I don't think you, I don't, pretty sure you didn't eat it that way growing <laughs> up. No, I did not, honestly. But um, this is true. You know, when you have a restaurant, you start looking for variations of things and i'm in love with cooking i'm not just doing it because i have to it's true i started it to honor my mom and my culture but at the same time i really like doing it more than i like doing anything else so my heart is in it so i really do try like yesterday the day before yesterday i made something i called it beets hummus how many people know what beets hummus is? You know, it's hummus is really chickpeas, the translation of it. But the way it's done, instead of putting chickpeas, I used steamed beets, organic beets. And I used tahini, lemon juice. And so people it looked are like loving hummus, it. but it was pink and oh, yeah. it was delicious. <laughs> people are loving it. You know, it, it's good to have an open mind about No good to change a very old fashion or very old, let's put uh, traditional recipes. It's better to keep those because it's always good to do something new, but call it something else. You don't have to change the The dish itself, the original itself. It's much better to keep your original and do something else that's similar or a little different. That's why I always say variation. It's all right. I mean, the same dish my mom used to cook for us with meat, I can do it these days, vegetarian. If you add the right amount of spices, herbs, whatever you need to add to it, it's okay not to use meat or chicken or fish and to make it vegetarian. And it tastes as good. So, you know, before, people didn't, were not aware about being vegetarian or gluten-free. Or These days, everything is different. So you have to go according to what's going on. But respect your all. Keep it going and add to it. You don't have to take it away. I mean, let's I look, believe in that. I mean, it, you believe and it, it prospers in, in that belief. I mean, you look at dishes like Herrera, and I'm probably mispronouncing these, and um, Malukia. The, Malukia the, the and Harira, right. I mean, they, they are traditional. They right. are, you know, uh, during Ramadan in Morocco. Right. Um, Harira is the soup, of course. And then, you know, the, the stews themselves. I feel like every family had their own version of the stew, even though there was a way mm-hmm. to cook that stew. Right. You're right. What was yours? Okay. See, I never knew Harira growing up before I came to New York. That's another thing I should say. 
I didn't just get exposed um, uh, to, to, to Italian and Japanese, Chinese, things like this. In New York, I even got to know what Middle Eastern food is, coming from all these countries too. I never went to Morocco or Egypt or any of these countries. I met Moroccan people in New York. I had Moroccan people working with me in, re in the restaurant. And I learned from them. They were cooks. And I learned from them how to do harira. And then from another person and another person. And then I cooked it and I tried it and I added my stuff to it. It's much easier to change something like this than changing your mother's lentil soup. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And the stews, she was cooking all those stews throughout our childhood all the time. It was it's actually one of my father's favorite things to eat. We call it yachni, which means rice with something. The stew is always accompanied by the rice with the vermicelli. You made string beans a lot and tomato sauce, string cauliflower, beans, okra, okra. Like my mom always cooked mulukhiya leaves. I came here, I got exposed to mulukhiya, chopped mulukhiya, like a soup, like a fatty, with the rice in the bottom and the toasted bread and then the mulukhiya and then the, the onion and vinegar. My mother never had it like that. But here I got to know it that way. And then you cook it and it comes out good. Why? Because I like mulukhiya and I like and respect my customers, and I want them to have the right thing. And they asked me, and I tried, and it worked. So you get exposed, and the main thing is to open your mind to these things and know that everything can be done your taste, your way, if you pick the right ingredients, if you change things around a little bit. It's not physics, and it's not chemistry. I mean, it, you will not ruin the dish if you take something away or you add something to it according to your taste. It's all right. See, I love how willing you are to listen to your customers. You know, some restaurateurs are not and have such a staunch, you know, point of view. But to hear that you interact and let them interject in, into your cooking is, is kind of a rarity. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to hear. Um, and I wonder what dishes, maybe even like the eggplant Napoleon, are there things that your customers have influenced and, you know, uh, made uh you see i kept hearing let's say brussels sprouts i kept hearing from everybody they don't like brussels sprouts we used to saute it let's say with garlic and olive oil a little black pepper and salt and mostly everybody you see a face when you mention brussels sprouts so i made a decision to make brussels sprouts a little bit more tasty a little bit more of what people like and now i know more of what people like and i tried it the way we do it at Tenorin, with the pomegranate and uh, um, tahini and yogurt, and we make our own yogurt, and garlic, and it's crunchy, and people flipped over the Brussels sprouts. Everybody's asking me, what is this? How delicious? Why? From where? It was an incredible reaction that I got on Brussels sprouts. Eggplant Napoleon, the same story. My son hates eggplant. <laughs> And he would never touch babaganoush or eggplant in any dish. And he loves Italian food. That's how the idea came to my mind, to use basil and make pesto salad and add it to the, and I even marinate eggplant in pesto and then I bread, I bread it and the whole idea, and we even put cheese in there. The whole idea, it's like a mix of Italian and Middle Eastern. And he loved it. And now I hear it from so many customers. We never ate eggplant. We love your eggplant, Napoleon. So, you know, you can get things to become people's, ta you know, people's taste, people's mood, if you really try. 
And I mean, if you have a restaurant, if you don't, if your customers are not happy, why do you have a restaurant? I think I mean, there have been a bunch of times where customers have put something on her radar that she might have just forgotten about, like she hadn't cooked a particular dish in so long, and they'll say, oh, why don't you make this? Well, the next time they come back, they're probably going to find it on yeah. the specials menu. It's, you know, they can make special requests. Not every day. <laughs> don't go crazy. But, you know, she... she um, she definitely takes into consideration when people want a particular thing and will, will not make just it that them. you know even even when the customer tells you he doesn't like something it's okay i don't get insulted at all and i think it's really bad when chefs do or when uh, restaurant owners do it's okay it's a matter of a taste you don't like it we take it away and we'll make you something you like when you go out to a restaurant you're paying money for your meal you should live happy i always believe that so we try to make it as pleasant as possible. And I always said, even in the book, you want to change the recipe around a little bit, you don't like cauliflower, you like broccoli, do broccoli instead of cauliflower. Look for something similar. Always find the thing you like, because look, food is very important. It's one of the important, jo- most important joys of life, I think. It's, I don't want to start describing it in my own way, but what I'm going to say is it's extremely important and it takes three meals a day plus snacks. Look how much time we spend eating. It might as well be great. It should be good. We should not underestimate what we eat. Even if you want to be healthy, you can still enjoy the food and be healthy. I have an attitude about the food story. It's not always that food is no, no good to eat, no good to do this. No, no, no. It's great to eat the right food. They always tell us what not to eat, but they never tell us what to eat. And it's very important. I mean, we survive. Eat everything at Tannery. <laughs> I have never had anything that I even considered sending back. It's always been so glorious and you just want more and more. And you know, having this book now, I'm, I've already started tinkering around with recipes and playing. just makes me want to come to Tannery more because as much as you can cook from this book and enjoy a recipe, if you're not doing it with family, with friends, with the same ambiance and atmosphere that you carry at Tannery, it almost feels like you're doing the book an injustice. You know, <laughs> you, you feel free to cook as much out of this book as you want by yourself, but... Do it with others, and it's a whole nother wonderful experience. And Mm -hmm. I hope everyone cooks from the book, shares recipes, shares food, and like like you know uh, the two of you, just keep on adapting, transforming, and making the world of food a better place. You know, I have to say that the best thing I've ever done is working with my daughter because food and family, like you said, I now know I'm secure, and I know that everything is going to be carried on. And it's fantastic. The nice thing about it is she's enjoying it. Absolutely. (laughs) I also want to tell people that if you are cooking from the book, and we hope that you are, just feel free to give us a shout out on Facebook. You can like our page, follow us on Twitter. We'd love to hear about your experiences as you cook your way through. We have a regular uh, customer whose name is Jennifer, so shout out to her. She's been cooking stuff through the cookbook and, and, and posting it up on our Facebook page, which is really great to see. How do you say welcome to the family? Ahlan wa sahlan. Welcome to the family. Thank you, Thank so, you so much, much for being Thank on. Thank you, Michael. Again,
go to Tannerine, grab a book, have some spices, sit for lunch and dinner, and never leave. Beautiful Bay Ridge. <laughs> Come on, see us. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>